Hello and welcome to the Sharpening Report. I am your host, Josh Peck. Pleasure to be talking with you today. And we have a very special guest for all of you from uh, Sugarland Bible Church, Dr. Andy Woods. Uh, he's a senior pastor there. Absolutely uh, phenomenal information. If you've ever seen his YouTube channel, then you know what I'm talking about. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Woods to the Sharpening Report. How are you doing, Andy? Well, I'm doing great. Yeah, thanks Thanks for having me, and good to meet you uh, for the first time. My pleasure. Thank you for making time to do this, especially on short notice. Uh, it seems like I, I'm always saying that with my guests, because I always, uh, whenever I send an invite, I always ask them what their earliest convenience is. And um, most guests, you, yourself included, a lot of times are like, hey, if we can do it next Thursday if you have that available. So really appreciate the time. Uh, for those not familiar with you or your work, can you tell us uh, how you came to know Christ, uh, how that led to your ministry efforts today? To make a long story short, I was raised um, Episcopalian. And if you talk to um, Catholics, ex-Catholics, that's basically what I was. Episcopalian is sort of a stone's throw from Roman Catholicism, at least the variety of it that I was reared in. But I was basically raised with a religious, you know, uh, scene. And I thought, you know, I was saved by my good works, etc. And then I went to a home Bible study in 1983 uh, at the age of 16, and there I heard the gospel of grace, you know, really for the first time. I certainly didn't hear it in the parish that I was, uh, that I grew up in. And so, I heard about the new birth, John 3, and so it was through that hearing of it and the opportunity to receive Christ, you know, by faith that I did when I was 16. And so, that kind of took me out of a religious person into a Sinner saved by grace, a child of God, and just over the course of time, you know, I was really moving into in a different career. You know, my training is in law, and um, I, I have a, I'm a member of the California Bar, but as I just kind of continued in my trajectory, I just started to discover that my major spiritual gift was teaching, and so I, I just started studying and teaching. Um, at, at a lay level, you know, to the point where I just wanted to do it full time. And by then I had met my wife, Anne, Andy and Anne, and we have one daughter, Sarah. We've been married, um, we've been married over 20 years. And uh, she sort of encouraged me to go to seminary. So uh, we, sh we left California, went to Dallas Seminary. This would be around 1999. And Went through two degree programs out there, and from there I got a job um, out here in Houston. And so, you know, I eventually became the pastor of uh, the church you mentioned earlier, Sugarland Bible Church. So that's kind of uh, making a long story short there. Yeah, that's fantastic, and you're definitely gifted at teaching. I know uh, here here at our house, I, I usually cycle through about three or four different YouTube channels, but lately it's been stuck on yours. Uh, you have All so right. yeah, you have so much content, and it's so informative and helpful uh, that you know me and my family have been really blessed by it. And I know many other families out there uh, can say the same. One of the things that that really drew me to your channel, um, the Rapture. You're in the midst of a Rapture series, and and this is easily one of the most important things that we as Christians can discuss because, you know, it's a direct promise of Jesus to us, to the church, but it's uh, become extremely contentious. Why do you think Christians have found it so easy to, you know, fall into pride over this issue and divide and fight and, and all this animosity today? 
Well, you know, the rapture itself isn't controversial because everybody believes that's a Christian is in a rapture somewhere. Right. Um, the controversy relates to the timing of it. And that's sort of what you discover in prophecy is, uh, for example, the kingdom, which we'll probably get into a little bit later. I mean, we all believe in a kingdom. The issue is timing. Right. You know, is it now? Is it future? Is it before the re return of Christ? Is it after? And it, that's how it is with the rapture. The rapture itself isn't controversial, but it's the, the timing of it. And I'm of the persuasion that the timing of the rapture is pre-70th week of Daniel, you know, pre-seven-year tribulation period. And why is that so controversial? Well, I think Satan hates the doctrine, <laughs> <laughs> and he wants to stamp it out. My professor, J. Dwight Pentecost, says every time you see a reference to the second coming in the New Testament, it's always linked to daily life, you know, patience, prayer holy living, and when you live as if today could be the day, and only the pre-trib view teaches today could be the day of the rapture, uh, all the other views have got some kind of scenario that has to elapse first, but you know, if you live your life that the rapture could occur today, it revolutionizes how you live. And First John 3, verses 2 and 3, for example, says, he who thinks often of his coming purifies himself even as he is pure. And I think Satan knows the natural stimulus for holy and productive living that the any moment appearing of Christ teaches, and only the pre-trib view teaches that he can come at any moment. And so I think Satan doesn't want the church to have that natural stimulus for holy living, and so he works in history to stamp it out. And that's the only explanation I have, you know, in terms of the why there's such a vitriolic hatred, you know, not just for the rapture, but for the pre-trib rapture. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, you, you try to do some research online and look up what some of the other, uh, you know, the other positions have to say. And really, it, it's not what I've noticed is it doesn't seem like they speak in support of their own view as much as they speak against no. the pre-trib view. And uh, usually, not always, you know, but usually when I see that kind of thing, it, it leads me to think, well, if they're, if they're focusing their time attacking this one view, maybe this one view has uh, something to offer. <laughs> you're, yeah. you're in the uh, process of, of probably the most informative and exhaustive teaching series I've ever heard on the rapture. I mean, I've, I've been a pre-trib rapture believer for most of my life, and you, you are bringing out things uh, that I wasn't even aware of, and, and it, it's blessing a lot of people, and, and you really leave no stone left unturned. I, I find it incredibly beneficial. Can you tell us what inspired that series and what what is the response to it then? Well, I think what inspired inspired it is just a lifelong inquiry, you know, that I've had as a Christian. Um, ever since I got saved back in the early 80s, Bible prophecy, which as you know is 27% of the Bible, you know, has always been very interesting to me. You know, I come from the legal background where I need proof. I can't believe something unless there's proof. And Bible prophecies is what gives me proof that the Bible is God's word because only God, you know, could reveal history before it happens. And God has an excellent track record, by the way, of his predictive prophecies when you look at the prophecies fulfilled in Christ. 
So if those prophecies happen, why wouldn't the rest of them happen? But anyway, it was because of that and the subject of prophecy that I got interested in it. I knew there was a tribulation period coming because the book of Revelation tells me that, particularly in chapters 6 through 19. And I knew there was a controversy concerning how much or if any of the tribulation I would experience as a Christian. And so I just... Um, wanted to get this issue settled. And so I just began studying it for a long time. And so what you're seeing in that YouTube series is just really the inquiry of my own mind, um, wanting to know, am I going into the tribulation or not? And I think it's something I just wanted to get settled on. And I really wanted to know the truth. And the more I studied it, the more I come down on the side of the pre- tribulational rapture and so that series on youtube which is about i think 36 lessons as of this date um, that's how that series materialized and the response to it has been very encouraging from my perspective um, when we look at our stats um, most most of the times when you teach a long series there's an interest at the beginning and then the interest sort of fades over time and it hasn't been that way at all with the rapture, um, our statistical numbers, whether it's on sermon audio or YouTube or Facebook or whatever, have not only been consistent but have actually increased. You know, as we progress through that study, so that's sort of how that study came into existence and uh, how people have responded to it. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, I've noticed the same thing with series on my own YouTube channel, and uh, <laughs> yeah, a lot of times uh, part one will do really well, and then it dwindles down after that. Um, yeah. But, uh, but, but yeah, I've noticed some of that has changed uh, when it comes to uh, the whole COVID thing. You know, a lot more people are at home and, and actually have some time to study, so I, I've decided on my own channel to try series again and see if it works. Uh, speaking of which, what is the best place if people want to um, check out your YouTube videos or get your books? What, what is the best place for people to view the series and check out your other materials? If they just, I mean, you mentioned our YouTube channel, which is interestingly where when I travel and I ask people how they heard about us, when I go to conferences, it's almost 90% of the people say on YouTube. So if they can just go to my YouTube channel, just type it, type in Andy Woods into your YouTube search engine and it should come up. And um, I also have a website called andywoodsministries.org, um, which carries our stuff. And then if they're looking for more of a comprehensive um, uh, compilation of our material, they can go to our website, Sugarland Bible Church, www.slbc.org, where they can find the material and also in video form, um, uh, audio form. Um, uh, the PowerPoints that we use are all there for people to download and use if they wish, and we have a lot of it in written transcript form. Excellent. 
Um, so I know that we can't get into every point in this interview because we don't have you know 36 hours, but um, right. one that I think is the most convincing for the pre-trib view is John 14, and I have the passage up. I'll actually read it here. It's verses uh, 1 through 4. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And this is Jesus speaking. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That is where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Um, so that, that to me, a lot of times we as Christians just kind of read over that and we, we don't think to apply it to uh, various views of uh, rapture theory to see which might be more you know, accurate or might fit that better. So how does John 14 actually show that a pre-trib view is correct and the other views just don't work? You know, this is read at funerals and memorial services all the time. Yeah. And so, so people think this has to do with, uh, you know, Jesus coming back and, you know, taking the loved one that's just departed to heaven. And, you know, the, that's not what the passage is dealing with. Obviously, at a memorial service is not, not the time to get into a theological argument with somebody because right. <laughs> you're trying to comfort the afflicted at that point. But the fact of the matter is the verse has nothing to do with death. Um, first of all, when we die, Luke 16 talks about how it's the angels that take us to heaven, you know, not Jesus coming and getting us. So, I believe that this is John 14, 1 through 4, the first reference to the rapture of the church ever mentioned in the entire Bible. And Jesus is laying down here the groundwork for his future church in what's called the upper room discourse given in the upper room just prior to his death in John 13 through 17. And he's laying out basically seed doctrine, which is going to be developed in the epistles. And so, if that's true, there ought to be some kind of reference to how the age of the church will end. And that's what you have in John 14, verses 1 through 4. And there's a Mennonite commentator named um, J.B. Smith who has put this passage alongside 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. And he's shown that the chronology of words, ideas, and concepts right down to the exact order, is exactly what Paul brings out in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18, the latter of which everybody takes as a rapture passage. So there's no doubt in my mind that this is referring to the rapture. Then the question is, well, is it pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib? What is it? It's interesting to me that Jesus says, I will come again and receive you to myself. Yeah. And he doesn't lay out any signs that precede that. He doesn't say the Antichrist is coming first and, you know, the temple's going to be desecrated first or anything like these other views teach. And so that's, an, that's a statement of eminency that this could be fulfilled at any moment. And that only fits pre-tribulationalism. It doesn't fit any of the other views. And besides that, you look at verse 1, and he says, do not let your heart be troubled. I mean, is it really comforting to know that you're going into 42 months of hell on earth? Yeah. <laughs> or seven years of hell on earth, and assuming your head 
is not cut off by the Antichrist, then maybe Jesus will come and get you. I mean, there's no comfort in that at all. Right. And so this, you know, the other views to me, they don't do justice to the comfort that's mentioned here at the very beginning of the passage. And that now, real quickly, the post-trib view teaches that we're going to be raptured at the end of the tribulation only to kind of make a U-turn, I guess, in <laughs> midair and come back right back to the earth. Now, if that's true, then why is Jesus preparing heavenly dwelling places for us as we speak, you know, in right. his Father's house? I mean, the idea is he's preparing those heavenly dwelling places because we're going to need them. The pre-trib view says we're going to need them for at least seven years. And the other views, you know, mid-trib and others, they say we're going to need them for a shorter period of time. But post-trib, you know, basically says we're not going to need them at all. And so it's got Jesus making a we're, – we're caught up and we make a U-turn and come right back to the earth well, then what's the point of him preparing the heavenly dwellings? It would be a useless building project. So when you look at all of the biblical data, you know, I'm convinced that this is a rapture passage, the first one mentioned really in the whole Bible in terms of her prediction concerning the rapture of the church. And I, for the reasons I've tried to explain, I think it fits a lot better with the pre-tribulational understanding than the other views. Yeah, I totally agree. And um, yeah, the way that I've heard it explained from post-tribbers is it's kind of like, you know, when a king comes back, you go out of the town to meet him and come back. And, and it's like, well, yeah, but you don't go and stay in the neighboring town and in the, you know, houses that were built, that the king built for you. And, you know, so there, there's a lot of things that with the post-trib view in, in John 14, uh, I, I agree with you. They don't fit. And in order to make it fit, you got to allegorize and do all that kind of stuff. There's a there one of the most popular views right now. At least that's kind of the general sense I get online. I don't know if it's actually accurate because I don't know how accurately you know the internet portrays real life. But it seems like the one of the most uh, popular opinions about the rapture, especially in uh, like the younger age groups, uh, is the pre pre wrath view, which you know. It, it, it's so similar to pre-trib because you could technically say, well, pre-trib is pre-wrath. You know, we, we believe in pre-wrath. And, and you got to really drill down into the details before you can figure out what it is exactly they teach, what makes it different than pre-trib, uh, so on and so forth. So when you compare pre-trib to all the other views, including uh, pre-wrath, in, in your opinion, what seems to be the strongest arguments in favor of pre-trib that don't fit with any of the other views? Well, you know, you mentioned pre-wrath, and, and I find that their label is very deceptive um, and ambiguous because it doesn't tell you what their view is. It's almost like a deceptive title because everybody is pre-wrath. The mid-tribs think they're pre-wrath, and I'm a pre-tribulationalist. I believe in pre-wrath. And what the pre-wrath folks basically are saying is the church won't be raptured out until somewhere in the second half of the tribulation period. So they've got the church here for roughly, and they don't like to be pinned down to an exact um, date on this, but they've, they've got it, the church here roughly for three quarters of the tribulation. 
And so I think that designation describes their view better than pre-wrath. But why am I a pre-tribulationalist? I have seven reasons why I'm a pre-tribulationalist. And I don't think any one of the seven seals the deal. I think you have to look at all seven reasons cumulatively. But of the seven, the one that probably convinces me the most is the concept of the missing church. You know, the word church is not found as being on the earth ever in Revelation 6 through 19. Right. Not only is the word church absent, but Paul's description of the church is absent. The body of Christ, bride of Christ, um, where he talks about Jew and Gentile of equal standing, united into one new man, um, the mystery that's described in Ephesians 2 and 3. I mean, you don't find that on the earth at all in Revelation 6 through 19. What you find is God is using nations again, in particular the nation of Israel to reach a lost and dying world during that time period. And today God is not using nations in that sense. The church is not a nation. Romans 10 verse 19 is very clear the church is not a nation, but we are made up of believers in Christ from all nations. So you go through Revelation 6 through 19, you don't find the word church, you don't find the concept of the church. If the church is ever alluded to, it's always in heaven. I think the 24 elders is a reference to the church in heaven. definitely. It's interesting the 24 elders don't show up in any heavenly scene in the whole Bible. But suddenly there they are in Revelation 4. Uh, The seven lampstands, which is a reference to the churches in heaven. And so this concept of the missing church, you you, you don't just find this in Revelation 6 through 19. Any um, tribulation text you examine, you never find the church on the earth. It's always Israel and the Gentiles. And read through Ezekiel 38 and 39. You won't find the church on the earth, Zechariah 12 through 14. Even in Matthew 24 and 25, uh, Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7. I mean, any fam- uh, Daniel 9, verse 27. Any famous tribulation passage in the Bible, there is no reference to the church either by word or by concept mentioned on the earth. And so, you know, of my seven reasons, that probably is the one that stands out in my mind as to why I'm a pre-tribulationalist. It's a strong argument, and when you when you look through the uh, scriptures with that through that lens, it it really uh, pulls everything together, and and uh, it's easier to come up with a chronology that actually makes sense where the church is. If you had to pick, um, you know, in the interest of fairness, if you had to pick, what are some of the strongest arguments against pre-trib that you've come across? Are there any arguments that you had to take extra time to puzzle over, or any arguments that you haven't yet found a satisfying answer to? Probably the strongest argument against pre-trib is not even a text-based argument. It's the idea of church history. Um, in other words, if this, if this idea of a pre-tribulational rapture is so clear, why don't we have a plethora of you know, church fathers um, advocating it? How come the Protestant reformers and Luther and Calvin and you know, all of the great creeds and confessions of Christendom, why don't they mention a pre-trib rapture? 
And so that one sort of takes you back a little bit. And you'll notice that in all of the criticisms of pre-trib, that's something people bring up all the time. Yeah. Which And it's interesting they're not talking about the Bible. They want to get the discussion away <laughs> from the Bible into this issue because I think they know at the end of the day that the Bible supports pre-trib. So answer to this church history argument, it really relates to the fact that the church fell into the dark ages. I wrote a book on this called Ever Reforming. Yeah. Beginning with the um, Alexandrian school of allegorical interpretation there in Alexandria, Egypt, you know, becoming very influential and ultimately leading to Augustine, first origin, then Augustine, where they just allegorized the scripture. And that led to the dark ages, you know, where the Bible wasn't even accessible to the common man. And the mass wasn't even read in the language of the common man. And this goes on for, you know, well over a millennium. So that's the reason why you don't have the pre-trib rapture mentioned is the Bible wasn't honored. Uh, it wasn't even available. And it wasn't until the Protestant reformers came along and rescued the church in the area of the solas, you know, the five solas. Right. So, sola fide, sola Christus, etc. And Luther used the literal method of interpretation to restore the church in those areas, but he never applied it consistently to eschatology. And so God had to raise up other leaders subsequent to the Protestant Reformation, you know, to use their hermeneutic to restore prophecy to the church, including premillennialism and pre-tribulationalism. So I guess the biggest argument that the other side gives that really causes your head cause you to scratch your head a little bit is where is the pre-trib rapture in church history? And there's an actual logical reason why there is no pre-trib rapture or not a lot of it in church history. And it has to do with the fact that I don't think the pre-trib rapture could have been restored to the church unless the Protestant reformers had come along first and given us the right hermeneutical model. And once you apply the right hermeneutical model to eschatology, premillennialism and pre-tribulationalism come roaring right back into the forefront. So we all agree that uh, you know a person doesn't have to be pre-trib to be saved or even to be caught up in the rapture, but that doesn't mean that they're not missing out on something. So besides just a correct interpretation of our blessed hope, are non-pre-trib believers uh, giving up anything in their walk by not accepting the pre-trib view? And if so, what advice would you give to them? Well, when someone asks, do you have to believe in the pre-trib rapture to be saved— um, my response is, what phase of salvation are you talking about? Because the Bible gives three. There's the past tense of salvation called justification. There's our present, where we're delivered from sin's penalty at the point of faith alone in Christ alone. Um, and then God moves us into the growth stage, uh, the middle tense of our salvation, progressive sanctification, where we're being delivered gradually under his resources from sin's power. And then one of these days I'll die or the rapture will come first and I'll move into phase three, which is glorification, where I'll be delivered from sin's presence. So you correctly point out that you don't have to believe in the pre-tribulational rapture for justification. 
nor do you have to believe in it for purposes of glorification. Right. But I think because so much of the eminent return of Christ is used to promote holy living and evangelism and patience under trial, I think you do have to believe in it to experience maximum progress in the middle tense of your salvation, you know, which is progressive sanctification. So anytime you take something that God has revealed and you deny it, um, whether it's the rapture doctrine or any other doctrine for that matter in the whole Bible, you cannot progress and mature the way God wants us to progress and mature in the middle tense of our salvation. So, you know, when people say, do you have to believe in the pre-trib rapture to be saved? Yes, you have to believe in it for progressive sanctification and its maximum impact, but you don't have to believe in it for justification. And what would I tell people, um, what are they missing out on if they're not embracing this doctrine? I would just encourage them to embrace the whole counsel of God's word. Because when you do that with all areas, including eschatology, that's where we're really in a position to grow, you know, in our to the maximum. So I hope that's kind of a wordy way of answering your question, but um, hope that helps. Oh yeah, definitely. No, it's it's not wordy at all, and I, I think people will you know really benefit from that because I totally agree, and that's what uh, I've said on this channel a lot too. Is like you know if there's a chance that it's even true, then you you know you owe it to yourself and God to at least investigate the strongest arguments. Don't just stick with the straw man stuff that people put up because all all views are going to have that. Look at the strongest arguments of of the views and see which one pans out. And I think if somebody does that honestly, uh, they're going to come to pre-trib every time. Um, we have a, a lot more to talk about, but we're going to have to do that in the members-only section at dailyrenegade.com. So if you're not a member yet, head on over to dailyrenegade.com, get a membership. It is uh, actually right now, it's totally free. So you can just go to Daily Renegade and sign up and you can get the rest of this episode and so much more. There's a free trial there, so uh, there's no excuse not to do it. And then if you want to continue blessing this uh, ministry and helping us out, that would be greatly appreciated as well, but you don't have to in order to take advantage of this. So we are going to be talking um, with Dr. Andy Woods on the topic of the coming kingdom. What's the difference between the kingdom and the church? What are the Matthew 13 parables all about? Believe it or not, the parable of the mustard seed is not actually as good of a thing as uh, we are typically taught in church. And and this is, this is one of the most uh, fascinating topics I could think of to bring Andy on to talk about. So we're going to do that in the members-only section. Uh, that website, again, is dailyrenegade.com. If you are a member... Hang on the line. Uh, everybody else, thank you so much. Take care. God bless.